episode Sources of the Nile, a podcast about media, science, and water diplomacy in the Nile Basin. This episode has been recorded in Khartoum, where we presented videos and research from our project Open Water Diplomacy. from IG Delft, the Institute for Water Education. Among the many journalists and researchers we met, today you will hear Tamir Abdelkarim, anthropologist at the University of Khartoum, and Omnia Shakat, co-founder of the Sudanese digital magazine Andalia. In the past month, our research team has been busy in analyzing debates on denial in international media like The Guardian and Al Jazeera, as well as in the Ethiopian and in the Egyptian press. One thing that struck us is how in those debates often denial and the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam in particular are portrayed as a bilateral issue between Ethiopia and Egypt. Sudan, in many cases, is hardly mentioned or not mentioned at all. And when the Nile is portrayed as a bilateral issue, the tones get immediately more confrontational. Once Sudan is brought into the picture, more room for negotiation, dialogue and cooperation seems to appear in the discourses. So, is Sudan caught in between Ethiopia and Egypt? both geographically and politically, let's listen to what Sudanese journalists think about it. These are a few of the Voices of the Nile recorded in Khartoum by Freddy Mujira from Water Journalist Africa. Uh, my name is Abdul Hadil Haj. I'm a journalist uh, from Sudan. The Egyptian people, they're talking about uh, history uh, and the Ethiopian uh, people, they're talking uh, about the uh, future uh, and uh, we are Sudanese uh, uh, people uh, between future and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and history. Uh, my name is Osman Shingir. Uh, I work for the Nile uh, project. Uh, I'm from Sudan. Uh, in our country, uh, as a journalist, we have uh, many challenges uh, to do our works with, 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 uh, with reports and uh, other investigation uh, journalism. Uh, the one challenge is that the lack of information. And the other one is the difference uh, about uh, numbers, uh, statistics, analysis, uh, that uh, from the researchers and from the academic uh, field. This is the, the main, uh, I think, challenge uh, about to do investigation, about to do reports on uh, journalism. Thank you. Sudan currently appears to be uh, neutral and there is no negative or positive initiatives. And uh, for media, Mm -hmm. uh, you could say that uh, the government of Egypt, like they voted with the people, if 
they won the dam or not, and then in Ethiopia, the dam. But here, no one asked the Sudanese side, okay? We are out of the picture. So we are here with uh, Tamir Abdel Karim, anthropologist from the University of Khartoum. Tamir, thanks for joining our podcast. Thanks a lot for hosting me. So we are here in Khartoum at the junctions of the two rivers, the Blue Nile and the White Nile. Yes. So already in Sudan you have two rivers mm. and I guess we talk about Sudan, but those two rivers might shape Sudanese cultures and identities mm. in many different ways. Mm. Can you tell us something about that? As you rightly said, like Sudanese cultures and identities, and that is where we, 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 we start with like the plurality and like multicultural nature of Sudan. Of course, generally I can say it's a big component of, uh, of Sudanese, I, Sudanese, if I can use that Sudanese identity, like in terms of national songs and like, uh, yeah, like the history. But what we, what we consider if, if we come to the context is we have the Nile intervening or shaping different cultures with varying degrees. In terms of regional, farther we go to the east or farther we go to the west, I think we could say the effect of the Nile in their identity would be lesser because they are not like benefiting from the Nile directly at least. When we go to the North Khartoum up to Wadi Halfa, and this is where we find a sharp contrast between the Nile and the its surrounding, which is a hostile, the most hostile desert in the world, the, the Great Desert. Then people have kind of in this region constructed this dichotomy of the Nile versus the desert, and like it is highly particularly go, when you go to the Nubian, and this is uh, where I have studied like people's interconnectedness to the Nile, and the idea that this is a life away from the Nile, even in their language, in their songs, in their metaphors, there is a sharp dichotomy in that eco-cosmology of Nubians, Nile versus the desert, and, and that had led to some disputes when, when there were new dams to be constructed in that area because local people perceived that and that is also packed with a history of uh, Nubians who were resettled by the high dam. That the resettlement for them, they don't even call it resettlement. If I can use the Nubian phrase, they call it that means we will be thrown into the desert. And desert in that eco-cosmological perspective is like all symbolizes all the spaces of devil and like absence of life and all those like mirage and it brings a lot of like cultural perception of the spaces of Nile and versus Nile. That's fascinating. Uh, you have, so you have people mm. of the river, people of the desert, yes. people of the mm. 
and different peoples of the Nile yes, and the, in and the south and in the also north. it is entering into also debate like so why why are we taking that Nile only passes through the center for granted why don't we like the petroleum pipelines are coming from uh, like south Kurdufan till Port Sudan then why don't we have pipelines of water to to Darfur and to Kurdufan and to those area also there is a debate in like uh, uh, there was a nice video about how each year the president go and promise the eastern sudan that we are like constructing pipelines and next year you will drink from the nile so why aren't we taking the nile water to the other parts of sudan is also a big uh, political discourse also like uh, it's coming from with a discourse of marginalization who has access and who doesn't have thanks for yeah. telling us how mm. ecology economy, livelihood, but also Politics, cosmology, cosmology shapes mm. different political discourses mm -hmm. about exactly. Nile waters, exactly. about dams. Mm. So I was wondering <clears throat> which is the role of uh, the media in promoting, propelling uh, those discourses mm. and which media? Mm -hmm. I think, of course, like as we have diversified positions, diversified cultures, diversified political positionalities, also we have like different kind of medias, like uh, the government-owned media highlighting and promoting the modernization vision of like Nile as source of uh, like modernizing, constructing dams and dams like electric energy hydropower being the engine of modernity in Sudan and end of poverty, you have that kind of developmentalist discourse which is very present in the mainstream or yeah, government-owned media. But when you go to the uh, like opposition political parties, civil societies, then you find discourses about these dams are costing a lot and where have our petroleum revenue money gone? Why are we constructing all these dams with the with foreign debts and what is the impact Chinese are coming to take Qataris are coming to take our land because we are we are not able to pay and so some people are rethinking of how costly it was it comes as a political like resisting discourse but the highest resistance you find among those who have been really affected by resettlement and then you find different forums which reflect this multivocality. Yeah. Which media do these people use? For example, if I can pick the Nubian case, because mostly those like anti-government, anti-state kind of discourses, they don't find their, their ways to the national TV. And they use several medias, for example, taking videos and putting it on YouTube or Facebook, social media. But they have also established what is called Kidin Takar radio station, which is based in, in one of the European countries, I think, uh, Greece. Yeah. So then it is a, it's a specific forum. And even in their like, overall aim, they say, to give the voice for those uh, like anti-dam movement and for those who are being like uh, are not getting the voice in the national media. In our project, we look at the mm. transboundary and mm. international dimensions of mm -hmm. the um, of water projects mm -hmm. dam. So, mm. I was wondering how um, other countries 
Ethiopia, mm. uh, Egypt, or uh, international powers, China are brought into the the U.S. Uh, how mm. are they brought into the into this picture? Debate. The the problem is like these big projects because they are controversial. They need to be negotiated between the government and the local communities, particularly because it, it involves their lives, particularly the affected communities. And when we take the nature of post-colonial Sudan and how the peripheral areas of the state are not taken seriously, they are being treated as subjects more than citizens, to use Mahmoud Mamdani's, yeah? So they don't take the consultation, the engagement of the participation of local communities seriously, and then they try to impose this project. And that, of course, provokes the counteraction, the resistance. And it starts from there. But the problem is, when a government like the government of Sudan, they, they, they seek legitimacy more outside the country than inside. And that is where the role of China and Arab and the funders comes in. Because those countries, they don't consider the social and ecological aspect of the dam seriously. At least when we see the World Bank, they at least at discursive level, they, they try to acknowledge, even if their practice is something else. But those, even at the discursive level, they, like this politics, Chinese politics of non-interference, you know, it is actually an interference in a different way, what they call non-interference. So as long as it is uh, like the economic uh, feasibility is, is approved, then we can fund and we don't care how you construct it, whether you like uh, kill the people or so. That one, we will not interfere. That is your internal politics, internal sovereignty. The, the, the problem is that when they get the fund without any conditionalities attached to it, they have an authoritarian tendency towards the, towards the local communities. And that provokes more conflict. And those who are affected also like take their issue thinking that United Nations and like uh, foreign embassies or like European countries or indigenous rights, human rights would take would handle their issues uh, in a in a better way. Thinking that and uh, they take their issues to the West and uh, this, that's why I was disagreeing with a book called uh, Sudan Looks East. Actually, Sudan the governing part of Sudan looks east to get the resource, but the governed part and resisting part of Sudan looks west and when we talk about Sudan Sudan is unfortunately torn apart between these like two dimension global dimension actually come into into this internal politics in a very negative way the the ideal position would be government sitting down with its people and trying to reach an agreement without you know whether the external patrons are happy with you or not that is that is what we lack the in the political legitimacy which is grounded not legitimacy which is externalized and Dam, coming so. back to the grand ethiopian renaissance Dam, yes what's your assessment about the impact for sudan mm -hmm. is it gonna be good mm -hmm. or bad uh -huh. i i wouldn't say dams are 
absolutely good or dams are absolutely bad of course it, it depends on how it is operated how it is because but historically reading the dams effect on the local communities like the it is not a bright history like and that is reflected on world commission on dams they like there is they, what they say there is a mismatch between who is getting the benefit and who is paying the cost and what I say is, and I, I would not be able to give any details, but I have participated in uh, this uh, baseline studies, which uh, according to the contract, we are not supposed to share the information. But like when we used to interview the local communities, they asked me the same question. We, we went to like almost 30 villages, and the farmers were telling us, like, please tell us, will it affect us negatively or positively? And my answer to them was, listen, anybody who tells you it will affect you positively or it will affect you negatively, he or she will lie. Because how will you be affected depends on how the dam will be operated. Thank you very much, mm -hmm. Tamir, for sharing also your experience of participating, taking part to this um, social impact assessment study of the GERD that brings us back to the big question of the role of uh, knowledge, research, mm -hmm. and scientific mm -hmm. data information mm -hmm. in water diplomacy, mm -hmm. in water politics. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you, as mm -hmm. an anthropologist, mm -hmm. they, they are particularly keen on mm -hmm. reflecting mm -hmm. on the position, on the position of the, the research, of the knowledge. So which mm -hmm. is your mm -hmm. stand on that? Uh, unfortunately, when I evaluate the literature of dams and resettlement, the tune of developmentalists is still higher because, for example, even the very concept in, in my book, which is coming out soon, I call like I criticize this concept of resettlement because if you are admitting that the accumulated data through history refers to that people were negatively affected, the overwhelming majority of the affected communities. Then how come you end up calling resettlement? Because the very concept you use tells me your positionality. I ended up proposing another concept, but that is useful only for the, like I, I wouldn't generalize it. What I did from, the Nubi, from studying Nubian, what they tell me is, they don't say, in Arabic, it's They don't tell uh, resettlement is They don't tell that we are going to be resettled. They tell me we will be thrown into the desert. And that, I can't conceptualize that if I'm dealing sincerely with my data as an anthropologist, I can't call that resettlement. I ended up calling it unhoming. Because when we take the concept of home, you are taking seriously the one who is sitting in the home, the occupant of the home, not the one who is coming from outside to engulf the home. And that is the ignored voices I try to push into this literature. Thank you very much, Tamir, Sounds for helping in deconstructing all these <laughs> discourses by bringing in the perspective of the many different peoples of the rivers of the Nile, of the desert in Sudan. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Thanks for hosting.
podcast so far, we talk to political scientists, hydrologists, lawyers, media experts, and journalists, of course. I hope you appreciated now the anthropological perspective that Tamir brought into the conversation. He recalled that there's not just one Sudan when it comes to the Nile, and how the river contributes to shape a plurality of identities and cultures. And of course, these identities and cultures have also competing and contradictory claims over the Nile. Tamir's analysis of the controversies and the suffering around the many dams that have been built and that are currently being built in Sudan recall a point that I'm particularly keen on and that I'm sure you've heard also in our previous episode. The need to unpack the notion of national interest, the nationalist interest of Sudan, of Egypt, of Ethiopia, and the need to look at how water, voice and authority are distributed within each of these countries. I'm sure here you can find a reference to our collective article on the politics of water governance. And talking about voices, I was positively surprised by hearing so many critical and outspoken voices of Sudanese journalists during our seminar at the University of Khartoum. One of them is our second guest, Omnia Shaukat, co-founder of the online platform and digital magazine Andalia. Omnia told me that the name Andalia is from a myth about a South Sudanese Robin Hood kind of guy who was loved and appreciated by society for being a good, a sort of good-doing rebel. I'm very glad to have uh, Omnia Shaukat as uh, our guest. I thought that I was going to meet a journalist, Omnia, but in fact, you're not technically a professional journalist, but still you're working and you launched a, a platform and an online magazine. So can you tell us about your background? Okay, um, thank you, Manuel. It's really nice being here today and um, welcome to Sudan. Is that your first time? No, I was there already 10 years ago, eh? but even before the partition of between Sudan and South Sudan. Sudan. And I think that's where Andalia started. Eh? Yeah, we kind of started um, along that partition or along that divorce, I like to call it. Um, it's a very harsh reality and it's a, it was a very difficult separation. Uh, it still is difficult and we're all coming to terms with that in so many different ways, not just psychologically and emotionally and kind of with our identity and our, and our um, who we are and what we are, but also politically, economically, socially, there's still a lot of battles to be fought. Uh, but let me take it back to the start. My name is Omnia Abbas Shokat, and I am um, I'm actually a graduate of biology from the American University in Cairo, uh, where I lived for almost a decade. Uh, I also worked there. Um, I was also I was going to the track of environment, sustainable development, sustainable technology. I was really passionate about that. And then I decided to do my master's in environmental resource management, and I focused on climate and water policy. Then I moved to Sudan as an adult for the first time and realized that this is a very steep uphill battle. And especially with policy, very little gets done over a very long time. So that's kind of where I became disheartened about the whole field. And I just started dabbling with something else. I worked in development for about 
a year and a half and then met my Andrea partner, Salma. Um, she's a marketer. Her background is in business and marketing and digital marketing specifically. And it was a time when a lot of people were coming online in Sudan. They were kind of um, on WhatsApp, on Twitter, on Facebook. They were starting to become more um, active online. So that was a time when I was also kind of exploring that arena of apps and how digital, the digital technology or digital apps or atmospheres or spheres were really changing the people, the interactions of different people, um, the way they get things done. And so when I met Selma, it was kind of, we were really upset that Sudan and South Sudan have this really negative publicity uh, image, but the resilience and the seed of change is within the little initiatives, the very few people, the very interesting pockets of activity that are really springing up more and more because a lot of the generation that grew up with all this struggle is coming to terms with um, the fact that you either have to do something or you just kind of submit to it. So a lot of people, not a lot of people, but it seems like a lot of people when we started unraveling it, um, a lot of people were doing amazing things and, you know, pushing here, pushing there with very little resources, very little publicity. And um, that deserved a little bit of attention. That deserved that we give them the mic and say, what are you doing? And through these um, publicity kind of initiatives where we kind of give people the microphone, we found that people were connecting to each other. So that's the story of the start of Andarias. And we meant for it to be Sudan and South Sudan because we are going through a lot of the similar problems, um, and especially with the, the negative image. More stories come up, you know, we have to think about how best to present the story. So we went from essays to photo essays to videos to digital campaigns. We're thinking of starting a podcast, maybe you can share some, some tips on that. And whatever it is, we're telling stories and the stories are coming very hard, very often, and we are struggling to keep um, on top of everything. Yeah, so and in those stories, eh, which is the place of the Nile River or water more in general? So what people, also do see in, on TV when it comes to Sudan, public opinion in general, and what do they read on the media? How stories about the Nile are told in Sudan, and how do you think they should be told? I think there are different ways that the Nile fits in Sudan. Uh, one, it's part of our identity, especially the urban identity, but also the rural identity, because a lot of people live on the Nile. That's just the reality of it. We're used to seeing it. You know, when we go to work every day, when we hang out at night, we're usually by the Nile or somewhere close to the Nile. So it's kind of, it's a part of our everyday motion, our everyday routine. So that's something very, very important. Maybe not enough people think how important and how integral it is to our identity. Um, another thing is the Nile is, is a resource for us. Of course, we're um, you know, a farming community. We are herders, we're farmers. We practice lots of activities that have to do with the Nile, that interact with the Nile, that engage with the Nile, that need the Nile to be there. Uh, the Nile is also a source of um, a problem because we have floods and droughts and floods and droughts, and it happens all the time. We are not prepared for it. Um, the Nile is also a political issue. And I think that's been kind of the forefront um, story for the last couple of years with this discussion about the water and the quotas and all these summits that are being held. And it's very disconnected from people. So 
how I see where we are with digital cultural stories and how we tell stories of humans and, and of people and, and of how things affect people and how people affect things is how do we talk about denial in a way that is relevant to people? How do we talk about the, polit the political stuff and the policy issues as a human livelihood issue? Because they are at the end of the day. The reason there's this huge fight is because countries want to develop, they want to push further, and this actually filters down to the average human being. And you say eh, you want to bridge also the distance between big negotiations on, on Nile issues and everyday life and how people experience the, uh, the Nile, which I find very important. And I was thinking you started by mentioning and introducing yourself with your scientific background, biology and then master environmental science. and. We also work with journalists and scientists trying to facilitate communication and see what links them. I, I believe there are many things in, in common as well eh, between research and scientists, especially when your position is kind of bridging the, the two fields. So my question is, how are you planning to bridge science and storytelling, merge science and storytelling to communicate about environmental issues like climate change on the, or denial? Um, that's really interesting because I always identify with being a biologist or a scientist and that's a really big part of who I am and, and how I got here. It's part of the story of how this entire thing came to be and I really believe in the scientific method for everything in the way that we run and the way that we produce stories and the way that we tell stories. I feel very strongly about data and sources and academic journals and so on and so forth and I, I really believe that we always have to have someone who can back our argument but also someone who could maybe even negate it but at the end of the day we have to have that back and forth discussions and the way i see our coverage of Nile issues in the as as it unfolds is that before we get to the policy let's get to the data why are they fighting in the first place there's a reason for that and that reason has to do with our livelihood as people we'll figure out all these news bites where are they coming from? Because the news fights aren't really telling much. There are, and especially for Sudan, because we don't have a very strong position in terms of what do we want from this? Uh, we're kind of mediating between two very strong opinions, and that has been our kind of passive, almost passive role. And because it hasn't been so strong, I feel that the coverage also hasn't been very in-depth in Sudan. And maybe that's why a lot of people are kind of floating when it comes to now issues here. Whereas if we had a more concrete reason to believe that we need to take this stance or we need to take that stance or at least understand what are the stances that are at stake, then we'd have a more pop, I mean, a, a more educated population and a more aware population that is able to see things for what they are. That's good. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to your report. So stay tuned to the website of uh, Andaria, which is andaria.com dot com. Yes. and also on infonile.org which is the platform uh, run by Africa Water Journalists which also features some reports on uh, water, Nile and drought in Sudan I hope very soon and eh? it sounds really exciting this perspective of, perspective of yeah. putting data together and, but different data and contradicting data so, thank you very much, Omnia, for joining the Source of the Nile. Manuel, thanks for having me, and um, I'll stay tuned to your podcast. I really like it. Yeah. It's a great conversation. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Great.
comes to media and science, we tend to focus on differences and misunderstandings between journalists and researchers, including sometimes in our project. But in our conversation in Khartoum, we were able to spot also similarities and commonalities between these two categories. Perhaps the most relevant one is that both journalists and scientists aim at representing and interpreting the reality. And in doing this, both journalists and scientists contribute to manufacture reality. And data and figures are a key element in this process. Numbers about the Nile are generated, collected, sometimes hidden or copied and pasted. They travel from one article to another and sometimes we lost the track of the origin of their sources. That's why I appreciated the remarks by Omnia about the need of acknowledging this plurality and the contradiction between different data and different representations of the reality also by scientists rather than simply evoking science as an impartial actor providing the truth. This podcast is brought to you by the project Open Water Diplomacy, media, science and transboundary cooperation funded by the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs Global Partnership for Water and Development. I would like to thank all the people and institutions that made our workshop possible and our stay in Khartoum very, very pleasant. You have listened to the music of the Night Project, a collective of musicians from different Nile countries performing together to spark curiosity and debate on the Nile in an innovative way. And of course, thanks to Emily Baust for her precious editing. I'm Emanuele Fantini and we've been searching for the sources of the Nile.